Thank you so much, James, for uh, helping to lead us. I like, um, yeah, helping us to think what, what winning really is. And of course, we've just been thinking about the cross, haven't we? The place that it looked as if everything was lost, and yet which we celebrate as the ultimate victory. Um, on a more light-hearted note, I love the way that the, the category of disasters included um, your house burning down or inheriting some cats. And I think, um, yeah, I'd put them pretty much on a par uh, personally, but, um, but maybe you wouldn't. Anyway, back to the book of Acts. As you know, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. Well, not so much working our way. We've been looking at different topics in the book of Acts. And this is number nine in the series of ten. And so we're getting towards the end. And I don't know if you know, some of you who come from a more, perhaps a more um, traditional church background will know that the, the church year, the church has a, has a year of seasons which begins next Sunday on Advent Sunday. Uh, that is the beginning of the church's year. But this year, this Sunday, which is the last Sunday of the church's year, is traditionally the Sunday when the church remembers Christ as King. It is the festival of Christ the King. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that either until um, yesterday. But um, we are uh, actually going to be thinking a little bit about Christ as king. But, um, and as Christians, of course, we believe Christ is king. He is on the throne. He's on the throne of heaven. He's ruling the cosmos. And one day he will return to reclaim his territory on earth. Because at the moment we do not see everything. We don't see it under his dominion. It is under his dominion, and yet we see the conflict still rages. In the meantime, there are other rulers and authorities on this earth. And I want to point you just very briefly to the last verse in the book of Acts. Um, I'm not using any uh, slides. It's not going to be on the screen or anything. Um, But uh, I'll I'll read it to you. The, The very last verse of Acts. Uh, So Paul has got to Rome, he's under house arrest, he's under house arrest by the Roman Empire, He's, he's in prison, he's got a soldier guarding him, but this is the last verse, talking about Paul, and it says, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What's the statement that Paul is making? What what is the statement that Luke is making as he concludes his account of the early church with that verse? He's saying, you might think that Caesar is on the throne. You might think that the ultimate empire is the Roman Empire. But don't be fooled. The ultimate rule, the ultimate authority is the one which Paul is proclaiming. The kingdom of God. And who is the ultimate Lord? Not Caesar. It is Jesus Christ. The one who who looked like a loser, who died on a cross, who the Romans, you know, pummeled into the ground. And yet, who's the real king? It's him. Who's the one who's really reigning? Well, and the story of Acts is, in a sense, or certainly the last half of it, um, we see more particularly the church in Acts coming up against the Roman Empire. Um, Now, the word empire, I think, in our day, uh, and this might be a more generational thing, I don't know, some of you might disagree with me, but I think nowadays the, content, the concept of an empire has fairly negative connotations. Um, empire, imperialism, imperiousness, and so on. Um, 
it, it's not it's not something that's it, it sounded something that's that's not particularly positive um i was we, we were having dinner with some folk here last night and we were talking about star wars and my claim to fame is i've never seen a star wars film uh, but i do know that there's an empire in star wars and it's not a good empire is it and generally i know we have vestiges of you know we some of you might have well, i know there's at least two people in the church you've got obes so we still have vestiges of empire being a positive thing but on the whole empires are not are not nowadays thought to be a great thing and in Acts, the Roman Empire is, well, it's, it's something that we, we're, I think, supposed to have mixed feelings about. There are some good things about the Roman Empire. Um, James couldn't do audience participation, so I'm going to do some. So what's a, what was a good thing about living in the Roman Empire for the early church? Straight roads. Straight roads, thank you. Straight roads and good travel. Yes, and good sea routes, safe sea routes, no pirates, or very few pirates in the Mediterranean, because the Romans had built good roads, they kept the sea routes safe, and therefore, what was the early church able to do? It was able to travel, it was able to get out from Jerusalem, it was able to fulfill the Great Commission, and to start to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, because of the good old Romans, who'd made things safe and easy for them. What else do we see in Acts was good about the Roman Empire? Communication. Yeah, communication. You could send letters and stuff. What did Paul do? And a couple of times when he got into a spot of bother, he appealed to his Roman citizenship as his sort of, literally, his get-out-of-jail-free card. And this, the, the Pax Romana we talk about, the fact that the Roman authority, and in fact, if you, if you could sort of get on the side of it and use it to your advantage, it was a great benefit. And also, uh, towards the end of Acts, he appeals to Caesar when he thinks he's going to get nobbled by the Jewish authorities and forced to stand trial in Jerusalem. He says, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. So uh, the Roman Empire had some good aspects to it. It had some not-so-good aspects to it as well. Um, we see this sort of, I suppose, hinted at in, in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is um, in uh, Thessalonica and he's, um, he's being accused and the accusation is these men who've, who've caused trouble all over the world have now come here and Jason's welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. You see, in the Roman Empire, you literally called Caesar Lord. It was written on the coins. He was Lord. And an, an accusation made against the Christians was that there was another Lord they were proclaiming. It was subversive. It was revolutionary. It was dangerous. And the, and the church, therefore, came up against the empire. So there were positives. There were negatives. And one of the interesting things I've noticed reading through Acts, particularly the last few chapters, is you get a whole series of Roman officials. Um, you get proconsul Gallio in chapter 18. You get the Ephesus city clerk in chapter 19. You get commander Claudius Lysias in chapter 22. You get governor Felix in chapter 24. You get governor Porcius Festus in chapter 25. You get the centurion Julius in chapter 27. And you get the chief Publius in chapter 28. And um, I might invite you, actually, in, in the home group questions I, I set, to, to look at some of these characters, because the interesting thing about them is they're all... We might say they're mixed characters. They were a mixed blessing to the early church. They did some quite good things. They sometimes upheld justice and kept Paul and others out of trouble, but sometimes they didn't, and sometimes they were not very good. Let me just give you an example. So here's Gallio uh, in uh, Acts chapter 18 in Corinth. 
Um, just as Paul was about to speak, this is verse 14, Gallio said to them, if you Jews, so the Jews had been accusing Paul in front of Gallio, and Gallio had said, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of, of such things. So he, he was being helpful to Paul. So he drove them off. He said, go away. Stop, stop troubling me and causing a fuss about things that are just matters that are not um, things that we should be concerned about. But then the crowd turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. So was Gallio a nice piece of work? Well, a bit hard to say, on the one hand, on the other hand. Um, and we see that, I think, with quite a lot of these characters. And I think the interesting thing is it's still, it's always a mixed blessing, isn't it, to live in a secular empire, to live under secular authorities, to live in a society where we are ruled by people who are not really ruling in Christ's name. In Acts, there are other uh, authorities, um, not just the Roman Empire, um, authorities who could be helpful or hostile to the gospel, the, the Jewish religious authorities. Um, there are economic powers uh, often linked with idolatry. You see the accounts of Paul in Philippi and Ephesus, and in both cases he is attacked because people saw that they were, they were threatening their economic well-being, um, uh, often tied with idols and idol-making. We see um, often there's, there's physical or psychological oppression, and often in Acts those two things go together. And the church is coming up against these things. It's not just the Roman Empire. There's other unseen powers which are at work. There, are, there is literally Satan and the spiritual powers. I mean, I could, give you, I could give you verses for all these points, but I'm conscious of time. But let me just give you um, one here. So um, Paul, when he's on Cyprus, comes up with a, against a man called Elimas, and he says to him, "'You are a child of the devil.'" and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? A child of the devil. And the name of Satan is used in Acts chapter 5, and we see various situations where, where there are powers and authorities beyond the Roman Empire, beyond the, other, the human authorities who are at work. There are idols and people whose, whose lives are affected by their worship of idols that we see in Acts as well. And interestingly, back, right back in the beginning of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, what does Peter say at the end of his sermon at the day of Pentecost? He says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He recognizes that, uh, actually he was talking to people in Jerusalem, it wasn't, he wasn't talking about the Roman Empire, he was, but I think in a sense he was talking to people in every age. We live in a, in a society that is, the NIV says corrupt, it's literally crooked, it's, it's perverted. There are good things about it, it has the vestiges of the glory and image of God, but it's been, it's been made crooked, it's twisted, it's spoiled. And we need to be saved from all this, and that is the message of Acts. And the freedom comes only through Christ, something that we see proclaimed in Acts from beginning to end. Salvation is found in no one else, Peter proclaims in Acts chapter 4, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You want to be saved from these authorities that are, that are persecuting you, that are abusing you, that are driving you into the ground. There's only one way to be saved, we are, the, the early church proclaimed. It is through the name of Jesus 
Uh, let me give you a few other messages, cause, uh, verses, because it's good to hear these references. It's good to be reminded. Acts chapter 13 um, in um, uh, Pisidian Antioch. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free, is set free from every sin. Um, Acts chapter 15, verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. Acts chapter 16, verse 17. Um, This is in um, Philippi. And uh, you remember there was the the slave girl, and she followed Paul, uh, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. This was a woman who was somehow possessed and was able to say things she didn't really understand. And she recognized that these men had the message of salvation. And then later in the chapter, you know the story of of the Philippian jailer and the earthquake in the night and everything else. And the Philippian jailer says... Sirs, what what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Salvation, being saved from the powers that oppress us, comes through the Lord Jesus Christ and only through him. He has won the decisive victory at the cross. He is on the throne of the cosmos and he invites us to share his freedom from every form of oppression. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. But, but we live still in enemy-occupied territory. The mopping up is still going on. The prince of this world remains active and dangerous. There are evil forces abroad which are not mere flesh and blood, but are the outworking of the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. And I wouldn't link those, those um, spiritual forces, I wouldn't link them directly with secular governments and state institutions, except perhaps in very extreme cases, in the same way that Acts doesn't link them with the Roman Empire. It portrays the Roman Empire as something more ambiguous, not, not utterly evil, not wholly evil, but like every earthly authority, corrupted. And we don't need to be reminded, do we, that earthly authorities are corrupt. No, thank you. We've read our papers this week. We've seen what happens when, people get, when power goes to people's heads and they think they can do whatever they like. Those in authority over us today, whether they are our governments or whether they are the global corporations and movements who sometimes even claim greater authorities than governments, who have massive influence over our lives, they may be God's servants for good, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, but they may also be beastly and depraved, as we see in John's vision in Revelation. And often, I think what Acts particularly reminds us is often they're a bit of both. There's an ambiguity about them. There's an ambiguity about our government. Um, We should pray for it. We should, in a sense, value it and treasure it. And yet, we are also, we don't do so blindly. We pray for it and we recognize that it's also inherently, because it's a human institution, twisted and corrupted and spoiled. So how are we to live? How does Acts help us in this? Well, I'd like to suggest three things. Firstly, remember how in Acts the early church made use of the Roman Empire. 
it, it milked it, really. I mean, you see Paul claiming his Roman citizenship. He, he used it for all it was worth. They used the roads and the sea routes and the languages and the Pax Romana and everything else. And today, as God's church, we need to be making use of the empire under which we live. I would say we should be making use of the internet. We should be making use of social media. We don't think it's inherently good. We think there's lots of it that's incredibly dangerous, but we use it. We use our privileges as a society that is relatively free, where we can express ourselves, broadly speaking, um, without fear that we're going to be persecuted. We use these things. We don't pull up the drawbridge and isolate ourselves from the world and cut us off, ourselves off and think the world is so utterly evil and vile that we will not have any association to it. That is not the model we see in Acts. It's not the model we see in the Gospels. Jesus and Paul then in Acts and the early church, they interacted with the world. They used it. They used the institutions and the opportunities they gave, they, it gave them. But what did they use it for? They used it for the gospel. They used it to proclaim freedom. They used it to withstand oppression. So the, so the first lesson is, in a sense, be positive. Use the world. Use the empire in which we live. But secondly... There's the, counter, the counter to that. The early church refused ever to say, Caesar is Lord. The early church refused ever to stop proclaiming the name and the saving power of Jesus Christ. Whatever the persecution or threats, Jesus always came before Caesar. The kingdom of God always came before the Roman Empire. We have to say no to things which are idolatrous and enslaving and godless and blasphemous, things which are anti-Christ. When Paul was hauled before the Roman rulers, what did he consistently do? He proclaimed Christ. He didn't, he didn't particularly talk about Rome and Caesar and, and slavery and all the things he could have talked about the Roman Empire. He talked about Jesus and how Jesus had the power to save. And therefore, thirdly, I think the early church, we see in Acts the early church choosing which battles to fight. And I wonder whether sometimes today the church prioritizes the wrong fights, the wrong battles. Let me be a little bit, little bit controversial. If you're a bit on the left, that might be climate change. If you're a little bit on the right, it might be euthanasia. And don't get me wrong, I think both of those are fights worth having and fights which Christians should be having. But if the world only hears us talking about issues like that and not about Jesus, we are not fighting the main battle. We are not doing what Paul and the early church did when they were hauled up between the rulers of the age. They were, we were not doing what the early church did when it decided what it was to preach when it stood on the street corners. We are losing our saltiness. For life in a world without Christ, however bright it looks, however long it lasts, however safe it appears, is life without hope. And our job, our job as the church, is to keep saying that, however irritating and unpopular it might be. The book of Revelation is, I guess, the classic book in the Bible about spiritual warfare. It gives a, a slightly different perspective to other books. As I said, if you read the book of Romans, for example, Paul sounds quite positive about the, the secular powers. Um, 
Revelation was probably written, you know, a few decades later, by which time a lot more persecution was happening. And it's, it uses a lot of coded language, but the, the basic message is be extremely worried about secular powers. Unfortunately, I think down the years, not all interpretations of Revelation have been helpful, to say the least. Um, and I think have sometimes distracted us from its main point. The main point of the book of Revelation is not that there's going to be a big cosmic battle one day, uh, and so we need to be looking out for the coded signals and making sure that we're on the inside track and that we've worked out the code. That's, that's not the point. The main point of Revelation is that there is a big cosmic battle happening now, and there always has been. From the, from the day the church began, there is a battle raging. There is a battle raging, and we need to be alert. We need to be always on the lookout for those who are distorting and oppressing and perverting God's truth. Be alert to what's really happening around you, and don't let down your guard, says the book of Revelation. But, the book of Revelation always says, remember who's on the throne. Who's on the throne in Revelation? God's on the throne. Christ's on the throne. The Lamb has conquered. Fight the good fight, Paul says. Put on the full armor of God. Stand firm. The New Testament brings us different perspectives, but it reminds us that God's on the throne, but the battle rages. And our job is to be fighting that battle, not just to lie down and um, assume someone's going to fight it for us. Be alert. Be alert to the battle you are entering when you read the newspaper. I don't read newspapers. I think they're horrible things. But when, if you, those of you do read newspapers, be alert to the battle you are entering, the battle for your mind and the other people's minds who are reading these silly things. When, when you go on social media, be aware of the battle you're entering, the battle for your mind and for other people's minds. And if you think, actually, this battle isn't doing me any good, then then delete your account. Be alert to the battle you are entering when you mention the name of the Lord Jesus in your home or your workplace or your college, or when you fail to mention the name of the Lord Jesus in your home or your workplace or your college. Be alert. Be alert, but also remember that God is on the throne. He always was and he always will be, and that Jesus Christ is is the victorious lion, but also the sacrificial lamb. The winner who was also a loser, that we might all be winners. And though the battle is hard, and the suffering is real, and the enemy is grotesque, we already know the outcome. We don't, as Christians, get a free pass out of the evil empire. In fact, often we get the opposite. But as Jesus said to his disciples before his death, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Praise to the Lord, who when darkness and sin are abounding, who when the godless do triumph, all virtue confounding, sheddeth his light, chaseth the horrors of night, saints with his mercy surrounding. So to conclude... Well, to conclude with the book of Acts, to conclude with Paul, what did he do, the final verse of Acts? He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The good news we have to proclaim is not one of an empire, but one of a kingdom. A kingdom with a king, a kingdom with a king who is a lamb who was slain. 
And on this day, on this feast of Christ the King, let us celebrate his rule. But let us remember that we are called to fight, fight in a battle. And let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we do that. We're going to watch a little, a very short video clip now. Some of you, well, it's really an audio clip with some visuals have been put onto it. This is a famous, uh, an extract from a famous sermon by someone called Shadrach Lockbridge in a, in a Baptist church in, um, in California, I think in the 1960s. And uh, many of you will have heard it before. But it's a reminder that Christ is king. I hope you will be encouraged and inspired by it. Thank you. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You see, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. 
for our king. What a king. We thank you that you are not a king who ever oppresses us, but you are a king who sacrificed your own self to free us. We thank you for the amazing privilege we have of living for you, of serving and looking for your kingdom. And we thank you that one day you will come again to establish your glorious kingly rule here on earth. And we pray that you will help us in the meantime to stand firm, to hold fast, to fight, to proclaim your kingship, to live your kingship. And we thank you for the day when we will see you face to face and will be overwhelmed by how glorious and beautiful and wonderful you are. And we pray that in the meantime you will fill our hearts with wonder by the work of your Holy Spirit. For we pray in your name. Amen.